was good. Wasn't that good just to worship together as a body, as a sense? It's good to sing. It's good to hear the, the amount of good quality voices in this room. But more than anything else, what I love about our times together when we do that is there is something unique about when we gather together as the people of God and we lift up His praises like we just did, where the Spirit comes and He moves amongst us. What we're doing here is we're not, this is not just a club that gets together and we sing songs that we all like to sing. We're here in the presence of God. So before we come to God's Word, I just want to keep us in that same place of, of reflection and stillness before God as He speaks to us. Because what my hope is this morning is not that you hear some interesting things that I read in the Bible this week, but that you would encounter the living God in His Word, that you would hear His voice speaking to you, and that again, as the saints together this morning, we would be encouraged. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to your word now with hearts that are longing to hear your voice. Lord, we want to know what it's like to hear from you this morning. We want to experience the things you have to say. So Lord, humble us, keep us still. Lord, our hearts and our minds, they run a lot of different places. Keep them focused on you. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in uh, week two of a, a series that we're calling The Unrecognized King. And this is kind of our ramp up towards Easter. It's crazy to think that we're already in that season of life, that time of year. The heart of this series is we want to head into Easter seeing Jesus rightly. We want to recognize the king. We don't want him to be unrecognized. And the truth is, so often we fail to see Jesus as he really is. We create caricatures about him. We create ideas about him that are just not there in the scripture, that are not in the heart of God. And so we want to try and train ourselves to see clearly. I, uh, I have to go see the ophthalmologist quite frequently for my eyesight because I'm, as, as I age, apparently my eyesight is getting worse. And uh, I, I'm at risk of, um, what do they call it, glaucoma. So I have to go and I have to do these tests every so often. And they always, they always do that thing where they, they fully dilate your eyes. Has anybody had this, this test where they do that? Right, yeah, none of us like this. But I, I didn't even know what this was. The first time I went in, uh, you know, they're doing the, the whole range of stuff, and they say, we're going to drop this in your eyes, it'll dilate it, you know, things will get a little squiggly. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, not a big deal. So then I go back out in the waiting room, because you've got to wait for like 10 minutes for it to take effect, and I'm scrolling on my phone, I'm like, oh, that's getting kind of hard to read. And I'm continuing to go, and within five minutes, I would consider myself blind, right? I mean, I could see colors and things, but I... I had no idea where I was. And I'm suddenly panicking. I'm like, how am I going to get back to that room? Like, this is going to be really embarrassing. They're going to come out here and they're going to ask me, hey, okay, Andrew Griffiths, you're next, come back. And I'm not going to know how to get there because I'm genuinely, I have lost complete, like, centeredness on where I am. I can't navigate it. Sight is so essential to navigating where you are, to understanding where you are and where you want to go. And the truth is, if we don't have spiritual sight, if we don't have the eyes that Jesus gives us to see clearly, we won't be able to navigate Certainly we won't be able to navigate God's will for our life. But I see even more than that, we won't be able to navigate the things that are in front of us because we're not seeing them clearly without Jesus. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at a story about seeing. An account in the gospel is about seeing, about Jesus seeing, about blind men seeing, and about people who can't see anything at all. And I want to remind us of the question that last week if you were with us, Pastor Joe who preached to us, he ended by asking this question. Do you see the king as he is, or would you, do you see him as you would prefer him to be? Do you see the king as he is, or as you would prefer him to be? That really is the question for us. It's the question for many people in the Gospel of John. 
As the Gospel of John goes on through each chapter, you see more and more people who don't recognize Jesus for who he really is. They only recognize him for who they want him to be. We're jumping in in chapter 9 today, and I want to kind of help set this up because something has happened in chapter 8 that gives context to everything that happens in chapter 9. See, in chapter 8, Jesus has been kind of ramping up the things that he says about himself. Remember last week, he said he's the bread of life and that all who hunger need to come to him. This week, he is uh, at the Feast of Booths, which is a festival that was going on amongst the Jews. It's a time when they're remembering their history and what God's doing. And Jesus says that he is the light of the world. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But he gets into this conversation with the religious leaders that builds and builds intention as he's saying more and more dramatic things about himself until it reaches this point in John 8 where he says this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Sneaky Jesus. <laughs> we can rush past a passage like that in scripture and not see the weight of what it's saying. You might wonder, why would they pick up stones to throw at him for saying something like this? What he's saying is Abraham, who was the father of their whole faith, he's saying he served me. He saw me. Everything that he lived for, everything that he was about, everything that you have been taught as a people was about me. And he goes on to say even more than that. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying unmistakably that he is God. That's why he uses that phrase, the I am. I am was the, the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. And Jesus is saying, that is me. Sometimes we're inclined to think, Jesus, he's just a nice teacher. He never really claimed to be God. He never really said anything quite as ridiculous as that, but that's just not true. Jesus said it again and again. He was very clear about who he really was. And going into chapter nine, he's going to help us understand what it means to really see that. So he goes in and he gives us three things, a greater miracle, a greater testimony, and a greater response. So I wanna read this with you, starting John 9, Verses 1 through 12. This is what it says. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said those things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So chapter nine starts with this dramatic example of Jesus's power. Dramatic story about a man seeing who had been born blind. 
There's really two miracles in this passage, but perhaps there's only one that's really easy to see. But I want to show you this morning the great miracle. It's a great miracle. Now, Jesus, at this point in John's gospel, he reminds me a lot of my firstborn son, Jonathan, because my son, Jonathan, loves to pick a fight, loves to pick a fight. With his younger brother, Ben, we could be sitting around the house and everything is going exactly as I want it to be. Just nice, quiet, people are playing, having a good time. And then all of a sudden, Jonathan comes and he pushes just the right button to set off a nuclear explosion in my living room. <laughs> and he, not only does he know exactly how to do it, he loves to do it. There is great joy in entertaining himself by pushing the right buttons, by getting the fight started. Now, Jesus in this moment is picking a fight. He's pushing the exact right buttons. He knows what he's doing. It's not just that he's walked into town, performed a miracle, and it just kind of all came together out of nowhere. Jesus has intentionally, thoughtfully placed himself where he is, and he's doing what he's doing on purpose. He's doing a couple of things. First of all, he's going and sitting with a man who we're going to discover people assume is deeply sinful because he's been blind since birth. So surely this is not a good person because good people don't have things like this happen to them. The second thing he does is he does this on a Sabbath. People aren't supposed to be walking around and, and making miraculous things happen on the Sabbath. Jesus has got into trouble for this an awful lot. So Jesus knows what he's doing. He's coming out of that last conversation when his life had been threatened and he's picking a fight. But he's doing it to make a point, to teach us something, to help us see something. See, he said in John 8, 12, we've talked about it here in this chapter as well, but Jesus says to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what that means more than anything else is that he has come to help us see. And so Jesus decides to perform a sign for a man blind from birth to bring him sight. And I love how this begins. Because right there in verse one, what we're told is this, is that Jesus sees the man. Chapter nine starts, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. The disciples didn't see him. And certainly no one else around town was looking at him because this was a beggar on steps that nobody wanted to look at. But Jesus saw him. And think about what was going on in Jesus' life. He's right now facing death threats. People have literally tried to murder him the chapter before. There's chaos going on all around him. He has disciples walking away from him at this point because the things he's saying is getting so difficult. And yet Jesus, in amongst the chaos of all the things going on around him, sees someone that no one else sees. That's how other-centered Jesus is. Not consumed with all of the chaos around him. He sees people that we don't see. One of God's literal names in scripture is El Rui. It means the God who sees. In Genesis, Hagar names God this. She says, you're the God who sees me. And that's why Jesus is the light of the world because he sees what we do not. He sees who we do not. Now the disciples' reaction to this little uh, spectacle that's beginning is to ask a question that a lot of us ask. Why? Why was this man born blind? But they don't ask it open-ended like that. They already come in with some assumptions because they don't say, why did this happen? They say, was it his sin or his parents' sin? So they already know someone has done something wrong. They're assuming that as they come to Jesus. But Jesus, his response to this question is one of the most important answers he gives anywhere in scripture because this is what he says. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
It's easy for us to assume that if someone's suffering, they've done something wrong to deserve this, or someone somewhere has done something to make this happen. That's a simple way to look at it, and it gives us control over things, doesn't it? To think about life that way. Because if it's all really about what I do, I get what I sow, I reap what I sow, then I have some measure of control over my life. But what Jesus says is, that's not how life works. It's not this man's sin, it's not his parents' sin. Actually, there's something else to see here. It's really kind of self-evident when you think about it. There's many good people who suffer terrible things and many bad people who prosper, never suffer terrible things. So Jesus is really pointing out the obvious, but he's doing more than that. What he says is, this man's suffering is an opportunity for the works of God to be displayed. It's an opportunity for God to show up. And what he's doing is he's putting incredible dignity and worth and value on this man who no one else chooses to see, who sits on steps begging every day of his life, and yet Jesus says, God can move through someone like you. God has great things to show the world through someone who no one else sees. Does that remind you of anybody else? No one else sees Jesus and yet the works of God come through him? I want you to know this, that in your suffering, your greatest need isn't to know why, it's to know who. You have a lot of painful questions. We all have a lot of questions in our hearts and we sometimes ask why when we should be asking who. Not because it's gonna justify the suffering. If we know who, it doesn't, it doesn't make the suffering go away. It doesn't make us happy about the suffering. But it, what it will do is it will give you something to hold on to in the midst of suffering. Something that's certain, something that's true. Something that's hopeful. It means that your suffering can have a redemptive purpose. It doesn't have to be empty. Now we've got to keep going because at this point Jesus does something really strange. One of the strangest things he does in the Gospels what he does is he spits in the gr- on the ground and makes mud. And then, being the kind guy that he is, decides to rub this pleasant little mixture into the eyes of uh, this man who he's just met. And he says, I want you to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man does as he's told. And the man comes back seeing. Performs a miracle because he heals the man's vision. But the way in which he does it, I think, points towards a greater miracle. There's a great miracle that's being shown to us right here. See, Jesus spitting in the mud is a very intentional act. If you were a Jewish boy or girl and you knew the stories in the Torah, you would know that the way that God made man is that he reached into the dirt and he made him out of dirt, made him out of the mud. And so Jesus, yet again, being the poet that he is, chooses his actions so carefully to say, I'm gonna show you who I am by reaching down into the death and restoring sight to this man, I'm gonna show you I am the God of creation who made eyes, who made men see in the first place. Everybody around him would know exactly what he was insinuating, that he was the maker of man come down to dwell amongst us. That's what John says in John 1 verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's exactly what that man saw for the first time in his life. Not only the physical things around him, but the glory of the God who came down to earth for him, to touch him, to see him. You know what the greater miracle is? It's that an infinite and holy and perfect God would voluntarily choose to descend into the madness of this world 
and see us and touch us. Speak to us. I don't know where you find yourself today, but I hope that if you are suffering and struggling, that you see the God who sees you. God is not blind to all the things that are going on in your life. He's not indifferent to them. He sees them. and He wants to speak into them. Now, I said Jesus was picking a fight when he did this, and indeed he was, because as soon as this happened... The Pharisees send out a call. We want to see this guy. We want to find out what's going on here because this is just unbelievable. And at that point, we get two testimonies. Now I want to talk about the greater testimony. The greater testimony. Now, I think I was somewhere around 10 years old, nine years old, when uh, I woke up one morning to a really shocking piece of news. I went downstairs uh, and I tried to turn on my, I think it was like my Saturday morning cartoons as a 10-year-old kid, and instead, I saw the face of this lady right here, Princess Diana. Because when I was about 10 years old, Britain was waking up that morning to the news that Princess Diana had been killed in a car accident in Paris. And it covered, and there was nothing else on TV for that entire day. Now, I was just bummed out that my cartoons were on because I did not appreciate Princess Diana as a 10-year-old boy. So I just kind of, you know, got to work. And then when my mom and dad woke up a couple of hours later... They came down and said, why aren't you watching TV? And I said, well, Princess Diana's died. And I remember that my mom said, don't say such a horrible thing, Andrew. Why would you say such an awful thing? And I, I remember thinking, well, that was the truth. That's, that's what I saw. That's what, that's what I found this morning. But sometimes when you hear a truth that is unpleasant to you, that is disruptive to you, that is uncomfortable to you, your first reaction is to resist it, is to hold it at arm's length. That's exactly what happens in the story, is Jesus tells us a truth that is very uncomfortable. Because if he is the God of creation, come down to dwell amongst us, to see us, to touch us, then that means he's a very unique person. In fact, he's the person that has the right to say anything he wants to whoever he wants, however he wants. That's disruptive. That's what happens with John 9, 13 through 25. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division amongst them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Explain this to us. Tell us what has happened here because it absolutely cannot be what this guy has just told us. His parents answered, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. And therefore his parents said to him, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. 
There's two testimonies that the Pharisees seek, the man and his parents. Parents come and they acknowledge that their son was born blind, that he's now healed, but were given some kind of behind-the-scenes commentary on what was really happening in that testimony because the parents had a fear. They had a fear because the, the Pharisees have already said, if you even indicate, if you even hint that Jesus is anything more than a riot causer, you're going to be put out of the synagogue. We're going to destroy your social life. We're going to remove you from the active community. And they didn't want to face those consequences. They were afraid as many were. They came and they acknowledged that their son was born blind, that he's now healed, that something miraculous has happened, but they stopped short of attaching themselves in any way to Jesus. Didn't want to face consequences. So they're timid in their testimony. The point is for us is that fear sometimes controls our testimony and what we're willing to see. Fear is governing their response to Jesus. And perhaps you felt that way. Sometimes when uh, I know that something bad has happened between the kids, I'll go and ask them and I get two different stories. Now, why do I get two different stories? It's because they're afraid of what's gonna happen. So they try and control the narrative. They wanna, they wanna, they wanna present the story in the way that works out well for them. It's the same thing happening here. People who are afraid. Now, I, I'm not, I don't wanna look down on these parents. This was frightening. Jesus is intimidating. The things that he does, the things that he claims are disruptive. But he is good. And that's the greater testimony. The words of this man born blind who says this, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. That's the greater testimony for a couple of reasons. First, the man isn't claiming to know everything and understand everything about Jesus. He isn't trying to answer every question. He's saying, look, this is what I've experienced. This is what I've seen. This is what has happened to me. There's a lot that the blind man undoubtedly still had questions about. And that's important for us as we share our own stories of what God has done and who he's shown himself to be. We're not trying to answer everything. We're not trying to explain away every question. What we're trying to do is see who he has clearly shown himself to be and what he has clearly done for us. I have lots of questions about Jesus that trouble me. Questions that get asked of me as a pastor that I have no answers for. My aim is not to answer every question it's to be clear about who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Second thing, this man has the courage to do what his parents didn't. He's being pushed, just like them, to distance himself from this man. Tell us he's a sinner. Just agree. We know that he's a sinner. Give glory to God by telling us he's a sinner. Does anybody else find it really interesting that they're not at all interested that a man born blind can now see? All they want to do is have a conversation about whether Jesus is a sinner or not. And this man won't budge. He says, no, I'm not going to distance myself from this man. I know what he did for me. I know the change that happened in me as a result of what he did. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you this week to make some space to learn to preach like that man. Sit down and learn to tell your own story. How would you answer the question of Jesus through your experience? I was and now I am. What would the answers be to those questions for you? There are answers. Sometimes it takes a little bit of effort to sit down and reflect and really be honest with yourself and ask them, but there is something beautiful, beautiful to be found in your life, something true about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. 
That's your greater testimony. Don't hide from yourself the things that God has done in you. Don't let fear keep you from seeing him. Lastly and quickly here, I just want to take some time to talk about the greater response. The greater response. The end of this story is this, is that these Pharisees, so focused on Jesus, they turn around, they say to the man, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Do you see that they're just, they're not at all open to what has obviously happened here. They need some other explanation. They're so committed to it. And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? You shouldn't have said that, dude. (laughs) They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, he's getting a little spicy now. He says, wow, this is an amazing thing. Wow, you guys, religious experts, you don't know where he comes from? And yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See how plainly he lays it out for them? Sarcasm in his voice, because at this point he's exhausted. He's saying, look, you're trying too hard to find a different answer to this question. You are blind. See the irony of that? That a man born blind is explaining to people who've seen all their lives how they should see. In five minutes, he sees better than they've seen their entire lives. Their response to him is predictable. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, Because Jesus loves to go after those that need to know him. He said, do you believe in the son of man? And the former blind man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. That's absolutely explosive. No Jewish man would ever kneel down and worship another man in front of him. It's ridiculous. This man has seen something in Jesus that very few other people had seen at this point. He understood something about it. Didn't just see him as a prophet anymore. He's worshiping Sees him as God in the flesh. Jesus is using a blind man to show us that there is a blindness that is far more dangerous than physical blindness. The Pharisees have that deeper blindness within them. And it blinds them to others, to themselves, and even to God himself. Blinds them to others because a blind man stands in their midst with confirmation that a miracle from God has happened. And they cannot celebrate it. They cannot even be amazed by it. So many people in our world longing for miracles. And they've got one right there in front of them. And they're utterly blind to it. And that shows us that they're blind to themselves. They're blind to themselves because not only can they not see what's right there in front of them, they are blind to the fact that they have ceased to celebrate what God celebrates. They're so fixated on the sin of Jesus, the sin of the blind man, the sin of anyone who would call this man Messiah, and yet they're unwilling to look inside of their own hearts 
and ask what sin might be there. That we would not even see a blind beggar who has suffered his entire life set free from his suffering. And we can't celebrate it. Can't celebrate what God celebrates. Mercy, justice, forgiveness, healing. The things that are beautiful to God have become detestable to the Pharisees. Actually go on to completely discount the man because he's a sinner. He's an image bearer of God. And they don't want to listen to his story. Don't want to hear it. They've become totally unteachable. They're blind to the most beautiful fact of all that the God that they have spent their entire life dedicating themselves to is right there in their midst and they can't see him. It's hard for us to fully grasp and and understand how unbelievable this is. The Jewish people had spent thousands of years dedicating themselves to God. The religious leaders in particular would spend their entire lives reading the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, learning what it means to follow God and the history of God. And yet when the guy that the whole story is about is right there in front of them, they treat him like he's their enemy. There's a point later on, we're gonna get to this in a few weeks, where Jesus comes to Jerusalem the week before Easter, before Passover, and he stands and he looks over the city and he weeps. Do you know why he weeps? He says, because you didn't know the hour of your visitation. Same God that had called them out of Egypt, that had fed them in the desert, that had led them into Israel, that had built the kingdom. He was finally there. Everything that all of history had been moving towards and they missed it. Don't miss Jesus when he shows up in your life. Don't don't follow the example of the Pharisees who were unteachable. There's a few ways that you can diagnose yourself and be careful of this because it's entirely possible to be deeply dedicated to religious faith, just like the Pharisees. They're not comic book villains. These are real guys that were dedicated to their faith. And so it's possible to be deeply religious and yet be totally blind to God. And a few ways you can diagnose yourself is you can ask questions like this. Is there a resistance in you to the things that God is doing in someone else's life. Do you see someone you know who's hurt you or is troubling to you and you see God showing grace and mercy to them and you become bitter and angry? I'm willing to bet there's more than a few people in the room. As soon as I said that, there was a name that came to mind. Someone that you know God is showing favor and grace to and you wish he didn't. That's an indication of blindness. Is there a resistance in you to the things that God wants to do in your own life? Is there things in your life that is off limits to God, that he's not allowed to talk about with you? Is there moments when you're in prayer where something comes up and you say, no, no, God, we're not gonna talk about that. We're gonna turn the conversation to something else, but don't don't ask me about that one part of my heart, that, that one habit that I've got, that one train of thought that I have. Don't ask me about that. Is there a resistance in you to when Jesus asks you to take risks? Are you like the parents who become afraid? Afraid that if you you follow what Jesus gives you, it's gonna disrupt your life. It's gonna change things. If so, there might be some blindness there. Only you can answer those questions. No one else can see into your heart except the light of the world who has shined his light to show you these things because he loves you, because he cares deeply for you. Because if we go back to the start of this story, who saw the blind man? 
was Jesus. And he sees the blind men and women in this room. He sees us. And he comes to us because he loves us. The irony of the story is that only when you admit you are blind are you able to finally see. Until you know you need sight, you'll never look to him with faith. We all want to be the blind man, blind man, but we are unwilling to admit when we have been more like the Pharisees. Resistance. Unable to recognize our king. The hope in this story is found in the words of the former blind man when he meets back up with Jesus and says, Lord, I believe and worships him. Have you made the great response to call on him in faith? To see him as he's seen you? Tim Keller once said that the source of spiritual blindness is when we worship the wrong thing, when we put the wrong thing in the center of our lives, whether it be comfort, whether it be control, whether it be our own pleasure. If there is something in the center of your life, something that's giving explanation and meaning to everything else in your life that's not Jesus, you will become more and more blind. Only the light of the world belongs in that place. That's why Jesus says in John 8, before this whole thing happens, he's already set the stage. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, the call of the Christian life is to put the light of the world in the center, to fall at his feet as this man did and worship him. C.S. Lewis once famously said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. Jesus is the light of the world. And when we see him, by him we see everything else. That's what Christ offers us. If we are willing to acknowledge our need and come to him. That's the great response, to acknowledge our blindness and to come to him in worship. So don't wait. This morning, if you find yourself in need of the one who makes blind men see, know that he has seen you already. And he calls your name. Don't let your fears deter you. Don't let your assumptions restrain you. Come to the one who came for you. Even where you're at right now, it doesn't need to be a, an elaborate experience to just call out in your heart to say, God, I see my blindness. I see my need to have my eyes remade by the God of creation. Come and do that for me. If you pray those words, if you believe that in your heart, then the God of creation comes to you. That you too might say, I was blind and now I see. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much that you are the God who makes us see. And you do that because you first saw us. Not all of us at one time in our life, perhaps even right now, have been like that beggar, going through suffering, with questions in our heart, feeling unseen by everyone around us. But Lord, you see us. And you call us to come to you. So Lord, I pray that we would do that. Lord, I pray that you would remove those things in our hearts that keep us from seeing you rightly. That we could join with this man and say we were blind and now we see. I pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for worship today. I hope you've been encouraged. Hope above everything else, you, you understand and see that there's a God who sees you, who knows your name.
calls you to come to him. Anyway, we can pray for you. We just want to remind you we're a church that cares deeply about that. We don't want to let that fall to the wayside. Please come grab me, grab Luke, grab any of our team. We would love to pray for you, pray with you. We have a prayer room available at the back as well. Just a reminder, I would love for you to sign up for our Passover experience. It's out in the lobby. Find more information on that. It's coming up quick. Uh, and we would love to try and get some volunteers for extravaganza as well. So if you are planning on coming and you can be of any help at all, stacking chairs, doing anything like that, please let us know. We'd love to have you. But for now, let me leave you with a benediction from Genesis 16. The words of Hagar who said to the God who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. In Christ, God does look after us. Let's go in his name. Amen.